presenter is an international speaker for the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association and also a professor at Life University. Please welcome Dr. Drew Rubin. education. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. I am here to stand up for their rights, to raise their voice. It is not time to pity them. It is not time to pity them. It is time to take action. So it becomes the last time. The last time. So it becomes the last time that we see a child deprived of education. Good morning. Good morning. Malala. Malala is 17 years old and has already won the Nobel Peace Prize. I love that comment. I stand for the voiceless children. I stand for the frightened, the forgotten children. I feel that all of us should be standing for the voiceless children, for the forgotten children, for the frightened children. And what I want to do today in my portion is to talk to you about the story of one particular voiceless child. This is Wynn. Wynn had a very tough beginning. 37 weeks, uh, she was born, he was born at 37 weeks prematurely. The conium aspiration, uh, having all kinds of trouble breathing, blue when, was, when baby was first born. Rushed to the NICU. Spent weeks and weeks and weeks in NICU. As you can see here, he's a few days old. He's got tubes in his nose and tubes in his mouth and tubes everywhere. And really, really fighting for his life. And the parents were really scared. You know, this is meconium aspiration. Like, if you look here, not to try to give you a radiology lesson, but if you look here, uh, on, the, on this screen over here on the right side, you can see a normal lung where all the lung field is nice and black. Right, it's clear and black. But if you look at the at this picture on here on the left, you can see like the meconium aspiration in his lungs, and all the, the dots of where he breathed in this meconium during his, his birth. And so they're struggling to get rid of this stuff as he was in his first couple of weeks. So they had all kinds of people working on him and all kinds of specialists, and, and this is where modern medicine really does shine, having all the specialists save his life and keep him breathing and keep him as strong as possible. But then after a while, they noticed, as the, the parents noticed, as he stabilized, they just kept on throwing more drugs and throwing more of this and adding more of this and just was more drugs, drugs, drugs. And finally the parents were like, you know, tell us what is going to happen. You know, give us a prediction of what's going to happen. And the outcomes that the best specialists in this particular hospital said were essentially take him home because one of two things will happen. You either take him home and you'll have to deal with the struggles of very severe cerebral palsy, 
where he won't be able to walk, he won't be able to talk, he won't be able to do anything on his own, eat, drink, move, uh, go to the bathroom, anything, or because he's so severe, he may even not make it through the year. That was the two choices that they gave him. But the parents really didn't necessarily want that own outcome. They thought that there was a possibility of another outcome. They, these parents have been patients of mine for years, and they completely understood the different lifestyle choices. And they wanted something different. And they were just so bogged down within the, the medical community that they didn't know what else to do. They were so frightened, and they said, okay, these are the two choices that we were given, but is there another choice? Right? All, just because someone says, well, here are your choices, that doesn't mean that's all the choices. That just means there's the choices I'm giving you. But are there other choices that could be given? So they happen to think the way Dr. Stephen Covey thinks in this particular book. How many of you have read this book, The Third Alternative? I'll tell you, if you haven't read this book, owe it, you owe it yourself to read it. Uh, Stephen Covey, he's famous for the seven habits of highly effective people. So most of you have read that. If you haven't read that, that's an awesome one too. But this, I think, is his crowning achievement. He passed away a few years ago, but this is what was his, his, his grand finale. And what he talks about in the third alternative is solving life's most difficult problems. You know, how do we apply the third alternative? And here is one heck of a problem. And what he talks about in this particular book is we need to ask a question. The first thing was over here on the left-hand side. It says, are you willing to go for a solution that is better than any of us have come up with yet? Are you willing to go for a solution that's better than anything is, anybody's come up with yet? So the, the doctors had told them, here are your two choices. But is there another alternative? Is there something else that could be done? Just because someone says this is how it could be done does not mean that that's how it has to be done. That's how they would do it. But you have a choice. Right? You have a choice. And then there's define. Okay, so what do we, what do we want to do to define our success? Create is create these third alternatives and then arrive and live those third alternatives. Here's that, that question again. Are you willing to go for a solution that's better than any of us have come up with yet? Not just... It's like thinking outside the box, I think, is one way to look at it, but I love this next picture. It's not just thinking outside the box. There is no box, right? There is no box. It's beyond the box. It's not even thinking there is a box. There is no box. So here's some examples of what I was thinking about when I thought about this no box thinking. You know, Samuel Morse, when he first made the telegraph back in the 1800s, he had to beg and plead people for to try it out because people were so resistant to his stuff, but it was one of the most important things to help win, you know, wars and communications uh, after the Civil War and stuff. Alexander Graham Bell, he had to beg and plead people, please listen to this. I'm telling you, this is an amazing new technology. We can talk to each other in different buildings and stuff. And he had to, at his own expense, place it in two different places and make calls to show people how important this is, because it was so outside the box, right? People didn't think about, oh, someday there'll be a telephone. There wasn't even a thought process of a telephone, right? So he was creating something so far outside the box that there wasn't even a name for it yet. 
And then the phone went on through many iterations. You know, I remember my mom having this kind of phone, and then we have this kind of phone. And now look at all these crazy things. Martin Cooper invented the first cell phone. And now, then Steve Jobs, you know what the brilliant thing about Steve Jobs was? Is he took the phone and he reimagined it, right? That iPhone that's sitting in all, most of your pockets and the Samsung Galaxies and whatever other phones you may happen to have, those things were imagined in someone's head, right? Because who would have thought, like if you had said in like 1970, when we were talking on these kind of phones over here, that someday I'm gonna take something out of my pocket that's not connected to anything and not even have any buttons on it, and I'm gonna push this thing and the screen's gonna come up, and then I'm gonna be able to push these things and then I'm gonna be able to call people and then go on the internet? Nobody would have even believed this was possible. Right, this is way past the box, right? The internet was way, I remember in 1981, I'm graduating high school, and they are bringing in these things, they're making this one room in my, in my high school that was around the corner from my history class, and he's bringing in these things, and I didn't know what on earth they were, and he said, I said, hey, what's, what are those things? He says, those are our, our Macintosh computers. And I'm like, what? A computer, like I remember I went, my dad would, you know, like we'd go to, his office, and they show me what a computer is, and like the size of this room, you know, and these big things go, and he has these big long chip things you have to put in, that have all these punch card things, and that was a computer. And he said, "This is a computer. Yeah, this this is gonna, this is the new computer." And I said, "What's it for? Like, what would you do use a computer for?" Like, I, my my father brought home a calculator that they let him have from work, so we could show it to us, and I was like, "The most, oh my God, I could like." Add things on on the on the calculator, and that was already blowing my mind. And then and then I you know I figured out when I was in high school like if you say like push certain numbers you could turn it over and it says hello, and that was amazing. <laughs> like wow, I could make this computer this calculator say hello. That was like big communication back in the 70s and 80s. So th th I was like, what is this computer for? And they said, well, it's just a fad. It's it's not gonna. It's just they wanted to, the board wanted to buy them. It's just a fad. It's not gonna last. And I said, well, what, but what does it do? And they said, well, it's going to help get rid of paperwork. That's the point. There's no more paperwork. I'm like, yeah, like that's ever going to work, right? And just think about that. That was come so out of the box. And that's what we're talking about and where we are now. There's no box thinking. Think about 1979. Another amazing thing. Tony Robbins was talking about this in one of his podcasts. <coughs> in 1979, if you remember when you were buying, like, speakers for the house. Like, I was buying speakers, you know, for... For, for my house, and I wanted the biggest woofers and the tweeters and the sub something or others, and they, and it's, it's, I remember I wanted to get this one that was like this tall, and my parents were like, you know, Drew, this is too loud, Led Zeppelin doesn't need to play that loud, and I said, like, oh, come on, my, it's as if you couldn't hear it, right? And what did Sony think, right? Sony started thinking, you know, everybody wants something bigger, we're gonna do the exact opposite. Right? Nobody was asking for a Walkman in 1979. There was no demand for it, there was no thought about it, no one was thinking about it, there was no design about it. But Sony said, everybody else is looking for bigger, we're gonna go for smaller. And if you really think about it, not only was that amazing, because I remember having one of these things too and thinking that was the coolest thing ever, but isn't this, this was the beginning, if you, if you watch Steve Jobs' movie, this was the beginning of carrying songs in your pocket, right? This was, this was the precursor to the iPod. You remember those things? The iPods, which now are our iPhones, right? No box thinking, taken to an extreme. <coughs> this to me is the ultimate version of no box thinking. If we were from a foreign planet and we landed in this room here and someone showed us this thing right here and said, 
this thing, what do you think this thing does? We'd all be like, I have no idea, right? We would any of us, and because we have to break out of our little box here ourselves, but would any of us, if we did not know what this was, know that that would grow a hundred foot tree, right? If we cut it open, let's cut it open. Let's be a scientist. I'll cut it open. We cut it open like this. If I look at this, would I say, oh, of course, that's an oak tree. Now, maybe a plant morphologist might be able to figure that out and say, oh, but look at that bubble of love. But if you and I were from an alien planet looking at that thing, there's zero possibility of me saying, yes, that is a future oak tree. And that, to me, is the ultimate in what no-box thinking is. Right? The ultimate of what no-box thinking is, is that there's no way you can go from an oak tree to this and say, yes, it makes sense. Completely makes sense. <coughs> so Wynn's parents had a dream. And it wasn't what the experts said. Right? They didn't buy what the experts said. They, they appreciated them, but they didn't buy it. So after six weeks, it was really amazing. These people were so intense in getting this kid as well as possible that what they did, the mom you know, pumped and gave the kid as much breast milk as he possibly can. And after several weeks of being in the NICU and he's having seizures and stuff, and they're like, you know, we want to bring him home, so just get him off all the meds. Get him off the oxygen, get, and the doctor's like, no, 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 we can't do that, blah, blah, blah. We want him home, just do it. And miraculously, every time they pulled another tube out and took another medication away, he was fine. Right? So talk about no-box thinking, right? Because they had no proof that anything was going to work, but they just did it. So finally, after six weeks, he came home. <coughs> and they reached out to us at eight weeks. They came to my office, and... I'm a board-certified pediatric chiropractor, so when I look at a child, I look at them from not just a chiropractic point of view, but from a neurological point of view. So we tested his primitive reflexes. And I don't know if you guys remember, if you guys have had kids or remember having kids or whatever, but there's certain, these reflexes, are you're born with them, right? And they eventually will kind of turn to something else as the kid gets older, they turn into other things, but they're all supposed to be there because they help build synapses in the brain and they help design other things for the child to do later on. So I perform a print reflex test uh, with him and these are like some of the typical ones that you might know, like if I shine a light in a little baby's eye, what would you expect it to do? You expect it to blink, right? If I clap my hands really loud, you'd expect the kid to blink and maybe start a little bit. If I put my finger in a kid's mouth, what would you expect it to do? You'd expect it to suck. If I put my finger in a little baby's hand like this, what would you expect it to do? Grasp your hand. If I went like this on the bottom of a baby's foot, what would you expect it to do? It would go like this. It would kind of flinch. Well, none of this happened. Nothing. And the blink reflex was the last one I did because I was getting a little flustered with everything that was happening. And, and I, I saved that one for last because so many, his eyes were crossed and so many things were going on. And it was the mom and the dad and the two uh, older kids. And I put the light in his eyes and nothing happened. I mean, I mean, you're taking a bright front flashlight like this in a kid's eyes who's eight weeks old and nothing's happening, that essentially means he's blind. So looking at this, he's blind, he's deaf, he can't nurse, he can't hold, he can't walk. So this, this is a significant crisis. So <clears throat> she's crying, I'm crying. She sends the kids and her husband out of the room and says, just go out of the room. Dr. Ruben and I need to talk. And she's tears pouring out of her eyes. And she said, Dr. Ruben, what do we do? 
This is what the experts said. We don't want this. There's got to be an alternative. What do we do? <coughs> Just a, a little while before Wynn made his appearance in the office, I had started studying a lot of functional neurology. And one of the books that I read was called What to Do About Your Brain and Your Child by Dr. Glenn Dolman. And he is probably one of the premier people, well, was, he passed away recently. He was one of the premier people to deal with very seriously brain-injured children, very traumatically brain-injured children. If you have not read this book and all his other subsequent books, um, like How to Maximize Your Child's uh, Health and uh, all these other great books, he's just got a whole series of books. <clears throat> he also created the Institute for Achievement of Human Potential. Read his stuff, because he, he is amazing. And he completely transformed the face of what you do with these very severely damaged children. So I read this book and I said to her, to the mom, I said, you've got to read this book and you've got to get to somebody who, who knows this work because this work is intense. So she found some people who did this work and they did a very long examination on the child and essentially this was the result. The result was the doctors are right. The doctors are right. The child will probably have either severe cerebral palsy or, if unfortunate, he may not even make it the year. If what? If you do nothing. If you do nothing. But are you willing to put in some work? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to go to the place of no matter what? So the mom said, whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. <clears throat> so here's the protocol. Eight hours a day, seven days a week for two years. Eight hours a day, seven days a week for two years. No breaks, no vacations, nothing but work for two straight years. You don't stop. You don't quit. Now, she wouldn't be the only, you know, they're not the only people doing it. There'd be OTs and PTs and specialists and all kinds of stuff. But the mother and the father will be doing the bulk of the work. Are you willing to put that kind of work in? She said, whatever it takes. And here is one of the most brilliant statements by Dr. Earl Nightingale that so much uh, encompasses this. Never give up on a dream just because of the time it will take to accomplish it. The time will pass anyway. Right? So what's going to happen in two years? You do nothing or you do all this work, the time will pass anyway. You might as well do the work. Right? You might as well do the work. <clears throat> look at his eyes. In this picture, this is his beautiful older sister. But look at his eyes. I don't know if you can see here, but his eyes are so crossed. So crossed here. And, but it wasn't because the eyes weren't working. It was because his brain wasn't working because of the, all the trauma that had happened during birth. <clears throat> so one of the exercises that was suggested to be done was this incredible eye exercise where you took, essentially, this is an auto light. Uh, I, don't know, I don't think they do this anymore. But when I was in high school, we had auto shop, and you used to hang this light up on the hood of the car so you could look into the hood better. <clears throat> so they said, get one of these auto lights, put a 100-watt light bulb in it, go into a dark room like a bathroom that has no lights, no windows on, all the lights off, and take that, that light like this and go right in front of his eyes and turn it on and turn it off and turn it on and turn it off and do that 10 times, 10 times a day. And don't stop until we tell you. 
And they did crawling tracks. If you can look on Dolman's work, you'll find crawling tracks where they'll take some kind of a table and they'll put some you know, pad on it, some, some foam, and they'll make it angle like this. It's called gravity-assisted crawling. So that they'll put wind on this, this crawling track like this and put them up here and they won't take them off until he starts to move. And when you have very severe cerebral palsy, if you, you, know, you go like this and, on, like on, on the floor and nothing happens, it's very frustrating. But if you have gravity helping you, you go like this and all of a sudden you move a little bit, now you actually start learning. So it's called gravity-assisted crawling. So they work with this kid. And here's pictures. They were doing vestibular work, spinning him on purpose, spinning him around and around to get his vestibular system working. They made, they, they, with the other kids, they made him like, touch different things because his, his, his uh, tactile sensation was really, really off. Remember we talked about the pomegranates. He couldn't figure stuff out. You can see in this picture over here, uh, the one over here where he's not able to lift his head up because of hypotonia in his muscles at around three months old. So they worked and worked and worked, and then as he's getting older, they're doing brachiation work where they're holding onto him like this, and they're swigging him and having him go on these monkey bars and this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and the question is, does the constant and never-ending work pay off? You know, the answer is yes, but here's Wynn at one-year-old. Here's Wynn at two-years-old. Here's Wynn at four with me. So last year, we were writing a, a report up about when one of my interns wanted to write a, a report up for a class. And um, I'm talking with the mom, kind of interviewing her, getting all the, the lowdown on what happened, all the behind the scenes stuff. And she said, in the middle of it, she said, Dr. Brown, I have to say thank you for everything you've done for Wynn. And I said, everything I did. <laughs> I said, well, I. I mean, I may have adjusted him, and I may have done some kind of reflex work. I worked on his cranium, so I certainly did some stuff, but, but you did the work. You guys did the lion's share of the work. Uh, so it, I, I don't really deserve that. She said, no, you don't understand. You did two things for me that nobody else did. When I needed you the most, you gave me hope, and you gave me resources. And everybody else said, <clears throat> just take him home and see what happens, and the best you can do is severe cerebral palsy. But they didn't want to stop there. There's a third alternative. There's another place. There's an outside the box. If you choose to believe it, there's another place to go. And that's where they decided to go. Like Malala said, we must become the voice for the frightened, forgotten, forgotten voiceless children. We must become that. We must become that. Because like, this is one of my favorite poems. Two roads diverged in a wood and I I took the one less traveled by, and that made, that's made all the difference, right? That's made all the difference in the world of what's possible, right? It was, they could have easily taken a road like this and just said, okay, whatever you say, whatever you say, we'll just do whatever you say. But they took another road, and they took it with blind faith. They had no guarantee that taking this road would produce anything good or better or different. They had no guarantee at all, but they went anyway. Right? They decided anyway to take that hard road. And yes, it was hard work. And yes, now he's six years old. Oh, actually, just turned seven a few days ago. He's seven years old, and they're still working two hours a day with this kid. And yes, he's, he runs in the office like, Dr. Lubin, I want my adjustment now. 
And just, I love this little boy. He's just the happiest little kid. And yes, he's going to walk a little funny like this because of the cerebral palsy. And yes, he still has tactile problems and eye problems. But this is a whole different boy. It's a whole different boy. Win has won. Win has won. Right? What are, the, what are the opportunities that we have, that you have, right now in your life, that you're saying is either this or this, and haven't really thought about the third alternative? Haven't really thought about, is there something else that we can consider that we haven't even thought before? That's the key thing. That we haven't even thought before that can take us to the next level. Thank you very much. Dr. Drew Rubin. Thank you, Drew. This lady gave us a fabulous three-hour workshop and